0: Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another podcast of Odyssey House Journals. I'm Randall Carlisle. This is Rachel Santizo. Hello, Rachel. Good morning. And and the reason we are on Zoom today is not because of COVID, but it's because of our guest, Michael Palczewski, is in New York, and so we obviously can't do it in our studio, so we're doing it on Zoom. Welcome, Michael.
1: Hello, Randall.
0: So just as an introduction, I should tell people who are watching that Rachel and I have never met you before, although I've corresponded with you on email. Uh, and uh, just for your uh, background, Rachel is in recovery from heroin. I'm in recovery from alcohol. So we're all sort of on the, on the same boat. And, and you are in long, 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 long-term recovery, right? And I, I, I want to say, uh, Michael connected with us, uh, just sent an email to us out of the clear blue. And so I connected with Michael. It's a very long, uh, a long explanatory email about where he's been all his life. Uh, mm-hmm. And one of the things he said here is, and, and I love this, I could live a thousand lives and never repay Odyssey for the life they gave me. Yes, the hard work was there, but so was the program that put the work and effort and heartache to valuable and life-changing use. So, yeah. isn't, that, isn't that wonderful? So so Michael, everybody out there watching is gonna say, oh, okay, so what happened? Why do you, why do you say this? You came to us back in our beginning days here in Utah. <laughs> Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, well, I was in the street in the Bronx. I was born in Harlem, and then our family moved up to the Bronx. So I have uh, experience in both places. And in the mid '60s, heroin came into the into my neighborhood. It was previous to that. It was basically in in like poorer neighborhoods. Then it started finding its way into suburbs and and in white neighborhoods, to be frank about it. And um, I got addicted to it right away, the first time I, I, I tried it. And uh, before that, however, I was a drinker. We were drinking a lot, we were alcoholics by the time we were 12. I had my first drink at 12. I had a drug called pyrogoric at eight years old. I don't know if anybody knows what that is.
0: Yeah, you could, you could get it at a drugstore. You just had to go yeah. in and sign for it. Yeah, and it, had, it had it was opiate based, yeah. right?
1: Yeah. And an opiate tincture oil, they call it, and it was strong as heck. And for someone eight or nine years old, it was really, uh, really a knockout. But the reason I said what I said was because uh, without recounting everything I did on the streets, I did committed a lot of crimes. I went from New York to. California, I lived in California, got arrested at least five times. When I finally left California, I left because the judge told me to leave. The judge said to me, you know, I could end this case right now. If you promise to go to leave this town and go back to New York where you came from. And I said, you got a deal. And I left. And I went back to New York and two weeks after I got back to New York, I was committing crimes again, and finally I got arrested. And this time it was a little more serious. I never committed violent crimes. Um, we did robberies of warehouses at night to get television sets, things like that, to try to bring them to the deal to get drugs. That's what we did. Anyway, I got caught. And I remember they put me in a, in a cop car, and I tell you the truth, I felt never felt better. It's hard for people to understand but I felt like I might have a chance to stay alive. If, I, if they take me away and put me somewhere, I might be able to do to survive because I knew my time was limited. I had already had three bad overdoses. I had already committed a bunch of crimes where I almost got killed. I got stabbed in one of them. I robbed a gas station, went out a gun. I just walked in and decided to throw the guy behind the register, away from the register, over the counter, started taking the money. Then they came at me, but people liked it. These are, not, these are not children, these are tough guys. And I tried to get away and one of them stabbed me. And um, I went to the hospital and um, I got in trouble for that, but there's no gun involved. It wasn't an armed robbery. So they didn't really know what to make out of it. So I got a light uh, probation out of that. Um, but anyway, if I was going down that road, I realized that I didn't have too much longer to go before I either went to prison or died. And the prison to me was, uh, would be uh, a break. It was a good thing. So when they finally put me away, the judge sends me to five years in that warehouse thing. And um, he said, if you go to a program I will suspend your five year sentence and you don't have to go to prison, but you have to go to a program and show up here in court every two months. And I wanna hear that you have clean urines and I wanna hear that you're, you're doing well. And in two years time, I will suspend, I will dismiss the case entirely. So I went to Odyssey House. That's how I, somebody told me about it. Another person in the street that I knew told me they went there to me that was like you know some kind of strange thing never heard of it but I kept it in my mind and I went and they gave me a lot of trouble to get in the program and which was the way they did it in those days (laughs) and which someone like me needed to get cut down real good uh before get humble before they let me in there like I was outside and on sweeping the streets and uh, doing whatever they told me to do every single day. And so one day they said, okay, come in to the intake and if we'll, you do well and we, the process will take you in today. And they, this was on 121st Street and Lexington Avenue and it was called the Harlem Pressure Cooker. And it was the pressure cooker because all you did was get pressure. They made us work, I guess, 18, 19 hours a day for me, people like me, they put me in the worst job they could. We had a a, a basement filled with water because it was a rundown tenement, and um, they sent me down there with a bunch of other guys, five other guys, and all night long we just bailed sewer water out of, the floor of, of where we were living back out into the into the alleyway, and. Uh, When I felt you were ready, you had enough of that and you were behaving yourself and you didn't show a bad attitude, Um, you got to be what's called the level one. And to be a level one, I guess you might have the same structure, but to be a level one, they gave us what was called a probe. My probe lasted 13 hours. And to me, that was the strangest thing that ever happened to me. Talking to her for 13 hours about my life, and then it passed me through michael i i have,
2: I have a me? question for you just at this very beginning stages because yeah. back then just um being able to go in at the at the very beginning right so they didn't have um medicaid assisted treatment or anything back then so you're saying that being arrested right so if you're on heroin and alcohol When you get arrested being sick, how did you push through, say uh, with withdrawals and say working sewage? What was your mentality? What could you say the mentality for people who are first trying to get sober? Because that is some courage right there and strength. How did you do that first part? Well, the
1: first thing was that there was no hope of having of easing any of your withdrawals called turkey pain. That wasn't even in my head. I knew I was gonna have cold turkey. I was gonna get the shakes. I was gonna sweat, oh, whatever you do. And that was gonna last three days. I knew that. And cause it happened to me on the street uh, plenty of times actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just knew it was gonna happen. And my attitude was, I'm not even gonna bother complaining to them about that cause we're all the same in here. Nobody's gonna care. And uh, the second thing was I'm here no matter what, that's what my attitude was, I'm here to save my life at the very beginning. I got so scared of what I was doing on the outside that I was willing to sacrifice all of my comfort just to stay there and so that I could have a chance for a future that I saw some of these people have. The convincing factor was the people who were telling me what to do were all like me. <clears throat> and that was they were there before me, and they got to be wearing a, a shirt and a tie. They got to do jobs that weren't in the sewers and in the, the rundown tenement buildings, and the, in the, the kitchen. You know, we had 125 people that we had to cook for. So um, the thing that that allowed my my mind to do was a lot of it was attitude too. I'm not saying I had the best attitude, but my attitude attitude got a lot better pretty quick when I was sitting in that cop car facing five, maybe even 10 years. And um, so the thing that glued me to it was, I was impressed by the people who were taking care of me. That was probably the number one thing. If I could put my trust into them, then this has to be a good place because I don't trust anybody. And I had a lot of anger, in my, like most addicts. And uh, I started to develop gratitude pretty quick. Gratitude and attitude will keep you from bad things if you, if you make sure that you keep them. I had to keep the gratitude going It's like a machine. It has to be there all the time. If it gets away from you long enough, a couple of hours, you could be out the door and on the street and dead. So for the whole 50 years I've been clean, I always check my attitude every morning and sometimes all day long. Because without it, I know where I'm going. Still to this day, right now, I still get up in the morning and I I, kind of like take my my emotional and psychological temperature every morning to make sure that I look in the mirror too. When I was in a the program, there was a time they gave me a little room. It was about four feet by eight feet and it had a little mirror in the room. And I remember getting up in the morning and looking in the mirror and loving the fact that I was still here and I could look at my face and I loved my face. I said, you know, you still look good you still, you still here. And every day I did that and it made me appreciate life more and more until I started carrying that with me all the time. And that's really what saved me. It saved me from all the things that happened in life. I mean, I became a jury lawyer. I was doing trials in front of a jury and the same exact thing is what allowed me to be successful in a field where was so far beyond my belief that I could even be there that um, it took me probably years to accept the fact that I actually achieved something because I was told, don't go to college. You can't go to college. You can't do this. You can't do that. You're never gonna be anything. And when when I got out of the program, I wanted to define myself, but I didn't know how. And back in those days, their re-entry was drinking. I, I, I hate to say it, but oh. turned into alcoholics like in one day. You know, most of us are alcoholics anyway. So um, I had to deal with that problem. So what I did was go to AA right away, which is something else I wanted to say while I was while I'm on this is if you relapse, go to treatment right away. You can you can save yourself. But if you don't you, you might, you're probably not going to save yourself. The odds of coming back after relapse, at least then, were very, very low. Maybe two or 3% came back. And I wanted to be in that little percent. So the reentry, they didn't have a reentry that helped guide us. I had a, a teacher that taught at the adolescent shelter. And I ran into him one day and he said, Did you ever think about going to college? I said, No. And he said, Well, why don't you think about it, fill out this application? I can get you funds and, and you could try out for a certain school. So I said, All right, I'll give it a try. Like, what, what am I got? What do I got to lose? And I got into a college and I started doing well. And uh, then I, I finished college. And I, by then I was defining myself as in still, and I used to call us ex addicts. I don't know what they call you then. To me, there's no such thing as an ex addict. But that's what we did in those days. So I was an ex-addict who was also a college student. Then I said, we well, can't be a college student forever. So <laughs> what do you got do next? So I said, well, somehow I got it in my head to go to law school. I took the law school test. I did very well on it. And I went to law school. And I told the one of the reasons I got into such a good law school, to tell you the truth, sometimes I wonder if this is even unfair. I told them my story about being in the streets and they liked it so much that they wanted to give me a chance <clears throat> because more, it's very hard to get into the school I like that. And but I figured I, I just, I'll tell them the truth to see what they say. So I got into that law school, I did very well in school, law school, I made law review, which is the highest state you can get in a law school. And um, then I graduated. But I, I fought, I fought the addiction all the way though, especially in law school under the pressure. It was phenomenal pressure that I I don't really know how I survived. I, I do know I survived because I did the same thing I did when I was when I was shoveling out the bucketing out uh, sewer War. I had the same attitude. I said, "You got to get through this because you're already here, and I don't want to. I don't want to uh, quit." There's one thing I learned in the program: is not to be a quitter. There's certain big building blocks that I learned there, that I applied everywhere I ever went in my whole life, from that to riding horses in Utah. I can't remember when I went out to Utah. I didn't even know that there was a Utah. All I know is I woke up in the morning and
0: let's uh, let's because we we skipped a beat here between law school and and you being in Odyssey, but so. You, you, you described being in an Odyssey, and we should tell folks that that was like the beginning of the Odyssey program, and it's where oh, it started, in yeah. New York City, and then it expanded. And so uh, some of the clients in the New York program were sent to other programs that were opening, right. and I presume you were sent to the Utah program uh, near its beginning.
1: Oh, yeah. I, I was only maybe, maybe a year away from the beginning, because I remember people were going... To these places like you're saying, New Hampshire, New Jersey, Michigan, uh, Louisiana, I and mean, people were going everywhere. One day they said to me, "Do you want to go to Utah?" I said, "I'll, I'll go anywhere." You know, so um, that's what you're saying is right. You know, I, there's a lot of history. Yeah, there's a lot
0: of history. And, and what was it like making the transition from New York from New York City to uh, Salt Lake City? It's a big difference.
1: It was like, I, I, gotta, I gotta be honest, it was like going to heaven. I felt like I was in heaven. That's how good it was. I mean, the streets of the Bronx in New York and Harlem and all of that craziness that goes on there. There was nothing nothing green. There was nothing, no mountains. There was nothing for you to appreciate besides the, the pavement and, and the, the, the tar streets and the barren, it was like a barren wasteland filled with nothing but slime and drunks. And when I went out to Utah and I saw those beautiful mountains surrounding the city, it really felt like I was in heaven. And then, and then the, I behaved that way because of the way people did things out there. I behaved differently, like going horseback riding. People said one day, we're going to go horseback. To me, that was like ridiculous. But I went along with these things. I went camping. I remember eating a rabbit. And That was like being on a moon because I never heard of anyone eats a rabbit. But (laughs) They went hunting and they took me with them. Then we went down to Provo River. I fell out almost drowned. And um, I started doing things like that. And that really, really made a big difference in my recovery. To know that I think what I got from that is that there's always something new and different if you want it bad enough if you're in a rut somewhere, there's always a place for you. The world is a big place and you don't have to be stuck where you are if it's really something that you don't want. And uh, that's the transition I, I made. And the people were very nice too. A lot of people said, well, Mormons are prejudice against you and Blah, 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 that never happened to me. They were very good to me. And a lot of people liked my story. I used to stand from the Bronx and people would want to hear about it. I was actually on a radio show out in, I can't forget where. Uh, It was with this guy who ran the theater. Um, The theater downtown where we started to go to because one of the women who was in the the theater troupe got to somehow got to the program and invited us to some place. And I never forgot, I saw this play Liz Estrada. I never saw a play in my life and had no culture whatsoever. So we got exposed to that. And then this, 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 this director of the theater said, why don't you come on to the radio and talk to people about what it's like to be in the Bronx, what it's like to be a junkie. I'm sure they'll love it and they did. I used to come on every Sunday in the morning. It was a, <laughs> not a very populated time. But there was enough people listening to make it, you know, to make the show uh, worthwhile. And um, those are the kind of the, a hot air balloon. We ended up going on a hot air balloon. Wow. because I thought of this idea of uh, public relations. So this guy said, well, why don't we make like a, a what did he call it? Uh, some kind of news release that we're going to go on a hot air balloon and, you know, keep people in recovery flying around in I and we did it and it was a, it was a real ball and I got to do stuff like that that you would never do back east you never do these things in 100 years so
0: so you so, you so you graduated from the program here uh st- stuck around a couple of years and then went back to practice law in New York tell us that we've only got about eight minutes left so tell us about your your life for those 50 years of sobriety after you went through odyssey
1: Oh, well, like I said before, there was always, there was always gratitude, which kept me alive. There was another big thing is humility. I had to make sure that I stayed humble at all times. And in my profession, that's not easy because it goes through a lot of people's heads and they think who they are and all this, you could just imagine, you don't even have to, you know. know. And, um, So gratitude and and humility is the way I faced up to the fears of doing something that was very scary to me. It was scary to me to be judged by people every day. You got the judges, you got your opposing counsel, you got your juries, and everybody's watching everything you do and you make one mistake, it's, it can be very embarrassing. You can lose your career. You know. So every minute counts. And I struggled with that the whole time. I got easier after about 10 years, maybe 15 years, I started to get second nature. I started to know really how to do my job, and which was jury work. And I did medical work and that was even, even worse. Because you had to learn medicine to, do, to cross-examine a doctor. How yeah. am I going to cross-examine a doctor? That's what I used to think. What am I going to do? So anyway, I took classes in NYU Medical School just to do a case. So I was very conscientious. And when I was faced with a problem, I wanted to do it right. There was another sense of right and wrong that I had that I learned in the program. From cleaning up ashtrays to sweeping up the floor, all that stuff counts. And you know, when I got into the world, I took that stuff all the way with me. I don't think there's anything I didn't take with. And even if I didn't recognize it was there, it was, it was there, it was always there. So that's how I got through the film. I got married. Uh, I raised two kids. I um, then I got, I got second, I got married again. I, I had great marriages. I had great, a great life. But I, I had a life that, like I said in my, my email, that was worth having for and it was worth waiting for. The biggest part was waiting for what was going to happen. And then all the weight, all the hard work, all the blood, sweat, and tears was worth every minute. And uh, even till now, it's the same exact thing right now. Yeah, I get depressed. I'm getting older. Life at this age is a lot different. It really is. I, I'm not looking to go to college or medical school now. You know, those goals are not there anymore. But you create you create something else. You create a new kind of heaven for yourself. If that's what you want. You can do it. I mean, I can do it because I've learned. But going back to, to my original statement, I learned it all in the program. Without the program, I'd have been dead a long time ago. Long, long ago. What would you say? Go ahead. I would never achieve anything. Sorry. I don't think I would have have ever really achieved anything without the input from the program. I think I would have just been someone who lays around and drinks. No, even if I was clean, I just didn't, I didn't know how to do it. The program taught me how to live. Every, in every sense, not just one thing here not just cherry-picking and doing this and doing that. No, it was every part of life I learned by watching the people who took care of me in the very beginning. And it's such a
2: good job. I have a simple question for you, Michael. Uh, Randall and I both um, have almost 10 years. And for, from my understanding and from what, um, from what I've been doing is I have to work on this thing every day. Like that is, that is how I maintain my sobriety and you have 50 years. And so are you still, do you still have to work on this thing every day? Is, is no. it um, because that's what I have ingrained in me is that this is a lifelong process and I will have to work on it every day. And so um, I would just, I would like to know, is this something that you are still working on the same things that you were doing before you're still doing 50 years later to be in the position that you are, the gratitude and the attitude.
1: Yeah, maybe, possibly, I let up a little bit, but really not much. I, it's the same exact thing. If I live another 100 years, I'm going to do it the same way. I'm not going to let up on anything because I can't. I'm still an addict. That doesn't go away, and it doesn't even go away a little bit. You, you, what happens is you forget, and you live a normal life, and you feel like other people, I think. I'm not sure how other people feel. You don't feel burdened all the time. After 40 years, I didn't, I didn't say, oh, I'm getting tired of, uh, of trying to be the, do the right thing, because all of the right things that I do give me a certain kind of, nu- what do you call it, nurturing. It's like nurturing myself. So it's not like you don't get something back for it. You get an everyday kind of kind of psychological and emotional massage that you can't get anywhere else anyway. No one's gonna ever give it to you. I don't care how many people you go to see. I went to psychiatrists and a lot of that was for maintenance on subjects that weren't totally related to my addiction. Stuff that happens to everybody I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. That, that's not, I did that for, to take care of issues that I really didn't know how to do. So I let someone else do. But the bulk of it was all how to nurture myself and, uh, and keep my life going and be conscientiousness is just one another big thing. Because you can't take your eye off the ball. I'm sorry if that's hard for certain people, but as soon as you do, it's like a pinball machine. You can start bouncing on everything. The next thing you know, you use it.
2: I love it.
0: Thank you. <laughs> what, would you so what would you say? We've only got about a minute and a half left. What would you but an awful lot of people who come into our program Uh, leave quickly because they say, oh, it's too hard. I don't like the rules, all that kind of stuff. Uh, What would you say to those people to try to encourage them to stick around?
1: Well, I would try to tell them the truth and see if they would accept it. But the fact is they're not going to leave people. If they they had any life that they ever liked before they got to the program and they want it again, they're not going to have it. And that's one of the things they got ingrained into me in the program people would say to me you know you you say you had a nice girlfriend what do you uh, you had you had a little bit of a social life at one time do you think you're ever going to have that back and I said you know what I'm never going to get that back not as a junkie because I'll either be a junkie or I'll be dead who is going to want to bother with me that got through my head nobody wants these people they think that they're hot stuff a lot of addicts they think that way you know me too I'm I missed the big, you know, and, and they're not, but they don't know it. Now, back in the Harlem pressure cooker, the encounters were really strong. I mean, you got to know just what a piece of, you know, what you really are acting like. You got to know it. There was no soft soaping everything. If they did the stuff they did today that they did then they get closed down, but I needed that kind of treatment. And, uh, I'm not saying go and beat them up, but if I had, if I was in charge, that's what I would do. I don't mean physically, you know, I don't, you know but uh, they have to know that there's nothing out there for them but death in prison. That's, that's what I would try to get through to them. Because a lot of them, I could tell by the way they, the way they, the, the way they talk and the way they, they carry themselves. They still don't get it yet. You know, we had guys that come in with wheelchairs This is what it took for them to get it. They got hurt during being high. One guy jumped off the bridge. He just felt like jumping off the bridge. He didn't want to kill himself. He wanted to go in the water. and he broke his back. And he spent the rest of his life in a wheelchair until he killed himself.
0: I mean, it's kind of like... We're we're out of time, Michael. Uh, I I want to thank you. The goal of this podcast is to help inform people... It's one of the most watched and listened to podcasts dealing with addiction and recovery. And our goal is to inform people who don't understand the disease and then hopefully have some people who are seeking help or thinking about help uh, finding that help. So and and I think you've offered an awful lot of good advice. Uh, So I'm impressed with everything you've learned and how you've hung on to it for for all these decades. You've inspired me. Rachel, you've been inspired
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. I can't wait to show this to my clients as well. So thank you, Michael. If you're ever in town, please call me. I think I'm going to come to
1: town. I really do. I'd like to go back. Yeah, Yeah, let me know. I'll definitely be coming to see you guys.
0: If you you come to town, let us know ahead of time because we'll have you come out and, you know, uh, we have uh, four... Uh, adult residential houses now, and a couple of specialized programs. We treat almost a thousand clients a day now, uh, and we would love, we would yeah we would love to set you up uh, to to speak to a lot of these people because you'd be a great inspiration. So, thank you for being our guest today, Michael, and. Rachel, nice to see you again, and thank you, everyone, for watching and listening to another edition of Odyssey House Journals.